Good evening. Um, while I just get a few things sorted here, would you turn to the person next to you and tell them what was or is your favorite subject at school and why? So if you're still at school, what is currently? And if you've left school, what was your favorite subject and why? Okay. Can I bring you back together? My favorite subject at school, by the way, was English. And uh, I'm an English teacher now. So I teach English language and English literature. And that has been quite useful in some ways for the study of Psalm 16 that I've been doing ahead of tonight's sermon. Um, I thought I'd start with a bit of an English challenge for you because we're going to be looking at double meanings, texts meaning one thing and another thing at the same time. So, little English challenge for you. I don't know how easy it is to see this. I've put up four texts. They are Shakespeare's The Tempest, Charles Dickens's David Copperfield, Jan Martel's Life of Pi, and C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I wonder if you know the double meanings in each of those texts. There are some clues up there if you can read them. So again, would you talk to the person next to you? Can you match the text with the double meanings? All right, should we do the answers? So the answers are Shakespeare's The Tempest. You can see as a as a reading that it was, we believe, his last major work, and that as Prospero uh, renounces his magic and throws away his magic books, it's the way Shakespeare is talking about his own retirement, his giving up of his um, creation of the worlds through his pen, and he's off back to Stratford. Uh, Charles Dickens' David Copperfield, semi-autobiographical. You learn masses about Dickens' own childhood through that uh, story. Uh, Life of Pi. Slightly worried I might have given away something of the ending in this. <laughs> but uh, the animals, are they just animals? Let's just leave it at that, shall we? And um, C.S. Lewis's Line, the Witch and the Wardrobe, this lovely portrayal, um, Aslan as Christ. And uh, the gospel is shown through that story. When I tell people I'm an English teacher, sometimes I get the reaction, oh, I liked English at school. Well, I liked reading the books, but I didn't like doing the analysis, which is a bit of a shame because analysis is kind of the heart of the subject. And um, it's about not just saying, well, this bit of the book really gripped me or I really like that character. But how did the writer, with just a bunch of words on the page, how did they create that tension that had you really gripped at the end of that chapter? Or how is it that just with a bunch of words as a character that you either love or loathe? Um, sometimes I compare it for students as being like the study of fast cars. Like it's not enough just to say, I like a Ferrari because it looks good and they're usually red. Um, but, a, but a real passionate enthusiast will be able to talk all day about the Ferrari but they'll also know not just that it looks nice, but how that styling is distinctly a Ferrari, how it is so beautifully aerodynamic. And they'll be able to look underneath the bonnet and tell you how it works and how that engine delivers such performance. So it's a little bit like that with textual analysis. Bear all that in mind as we look tonight at Psalm 16 with the given title, uh, The Resurrection Predicted. It is a psalm of David, um, probably written when he was on the run from Saul. But it's not just David. 
Because through the Holy Spirit, it prophesies, predicts, echoes, and foreshadows Jesus Christ. It has a resonance of and a relevance for Jesus. As the title of this talk suggests, it predicts the resurrection long before that could be imaginable. So I think we should read it. Perfect time to put the lights back on, by the way. Um, if you want to, to follow it, it's on page 528 in the Pew Bible, but it's also going to be on the screen here so that you can see it that way too. But I need my glasses on to read that. Okay. Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the godly who are in the land, they are the noble people in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now I'll be honest, when I first read it, I thought... It's interesting, there's nothing on the resurrection in it. On my second reading, I thought, okay, there's one verse, that's not a lot to go on. And in my third reading, I saw how this psalm amazingly resonates with Jesus. Um, By the way, for any students here who might be about to take an English literature unseen poetry exam in the next few weeks, the trick is always read the poem three times. Never write an exam answer on a poem you've only read once, because in the first reading it is always gobbledygook. In the second reading there's one or two things you can cling on to, and in the third reading that's when you find what your exam answer is going to be. Critically, in Psalm 16, the big clue that it isn't just David is the line, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. A reference to the body in burial, because David's body did see decay. David died, was buried, and decayed. So this is where we first see it's hinting at the resurrection of Jesus, because Jesus was raised to life on the third day after his death. His body did not see decay. But also, in that line, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, That, to me, sounds very like Jesus, too. The Bible tells us how Jesus trusted in the resurrection. You see, in John 17, verses 3 and 5, Jesus says this, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And he prays this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world was made. 
I love that image of Jesus in his human frailty at that moment, reflecting that he faced the enormity, the brutality of the cross, but he was going back to the glory he had before the world was made. Jesus had faith, this sure certainty about life after death. In Gethsemane, he knew he faced the cross, but he also knew he was heading to glory. The amazing thing is, because of Jesus, we too can be sure of life beyond this life. We will not be abandoned to the realm of the dead. In case you think this is just me, it's not just me. Uh, Peter and Paul also saw that Psalm 16 predicts the resurrection of Jesus. Peter realized the prophetic foretelling of the resurrection in the psalm, and he uses the psalm in his sermon at Pentecost. And you can see that in Acts 2, verses 24 to 32. Peter quotes Psalm 16, and then he says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. And Paul, too, in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, quotes Psalm 16 and uses it to explain the resurrection. But I think there's even more to it as well. It's not a case of a single verse or two. Actually, the whole psalm speaks of David's situation, but also of Jesus's, and echoes the things that Jesus said and did in the Last Supper and in Gethsemane. Look at the way the psalm starts. It begins with this, I say of the godly who are in the land, They are the noble people in whom is all my delight. Do you know, Jesus shows obvious delight and love for his disciples through the Last Supper and in Gethsemane. From washing their feet to tenderly teaching them and answering their questions to praying for them when he's in Gethsemane. In fact, in John's Gospel, the Last Supper is prefaced with this beautiful phrase, He had always loved those in the world who were his own, and he loved them to the very end. What's also amazing about this is that we see so clearly how Jesus loves those disciples. You know, we are equally beloved. In verse 7, when we get the phrase, I will praise the Lord who counsels me, even at night my heart instructs me, That, to me, has real echoes of Gethsemane, of that time when Jesus, knowing he faced the cross, spent time in Gethsemane and sought God and found peace in his soul because he was with God. The Lord counseled him and instructed him there. In verse 5, David writes, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my And the word cup is a really interesting choice. Because, of course, in Gethsemane, Jesus embraced the cup of the cross that he had been given. In Matthew 26, verse 39, we see that Jesus said, My father, if it is possible, may this cup 
be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. God had assigned the cup. Jesus was accepting it. He goes away and meets the disciples. He comes back to pray again. Jesus says, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. The amazing thing about that point in Gethsemane is that Jesus, in his human frailty, had a choice. And he knew what was ahead and he could have walked away. Jesus had a choice and he chose us. In verse 11 of Psalm 16, David writes, You make known to me the path of life. And of course what's so beautiful about that is that Jesus is laying out the path of life for us as he goes to the cross. In the Last Supper, we're told that Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And that's when Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life it's not just Psalm 16 that works like this a reverberation of uh, Jesus if you were to flick a couple of pages on in the church bible page 532 you'd hit Psalm 22 I'm not meant to be speaking about Psalm 22 so I'll go quickly Uh, but Oh my goodness, it's, it's this beautiful resonance, prophecy of Jesus on the cross. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words Jesus speaks on the cross. In verse 8, David writes, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Prophesying the mockery of the soldiers. In verse 15, my strength is dried up and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death, prophesying Jesus' thirst on the cross. And in verse 16, David writes, a band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This is written hundreds of years before the Roman brutality of crucifixion had even been invented. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. You see, even the tiny details of Jesus' crucifixion are prophesied there in Psalm 22. But so what? What do we do with this? What do we make of it? It's been a bit of a literary analysis so far. How do we make it real for us? Well, I want to suggest there are three things that you might take away from seeing this tonight and I hope that through the Holy Spirit one of them really resonates with you the first is God's planning provision and power because we see the prediction of the resurrection in this psalm written about a thousand years before Christ that reminds us of God's planning provision and power You know, it shows us that the resurrection wasn't some kind of cosmic clear-up of a big error. God had planned our salvation way back at the fall. God knew that the Jewish authorities would turn against Jesus, that the Roman authorities would crucify him, 
but also that his divine authority could raise Jesus back to life and in so doing defeat death once and for all. And that's why the accounts of Jesus' life are full of poignant details that add a greater and greater depth to our understanding of God as we glimpse his awesomeness through them. It's why, for instance, Jesus dies during the Passover festival, because that points us to how he is the new sacrifice that rescues people from death. Jesus' death at that Passover would eclipse and ultimately fulfill all that the first Passover was designed to reflect. It's why Jesus was born and laid in a manger, a manger where at the time the sacrificial lamb was traditionally bound and placed overnight so that it would still be clean, ready for sacrifice the next day. It's why the wise men bring myrrh, an embalming oil, a symbol of death. You see, in all these details, and I could have chosen loads more, we see the predictions, the foretelling, the explaining, the fulfilling of God's plans for Christ and for mankind. The rescue plan. Jesus' cross freed us. His resurrection opened up the gates of heaven and beckoned us in. God has already done it for us. He planned it. He provided it. He knew it. He's a step ahead. And he loves us. So we really can trust him for our little lives. He's got it all in hand. He is a God of great plans and provision. So tonight, maybe it's that we need to trust in that again afresh. Maybe recommit ourselves to his plans and provision for our lives. Maybe it's to seek his heart and his plans once again. You can trust this God to deliver, to come through, to have it all in his mighty hands. Secondly, it strikes me that this is a psalm that cries out to God. It begins, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. You know, David on the run from Saul, Jesus in Gethsemane, cried out to God. They took their anguish to his feet and found refuge there. Both clung to God. And I just wonder for some of us, maybe that's you tonight. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, why, why didn't God resurrect Jesus on the Friday? Why not have him die and resurrect him straight away? Why the three-day process? There are a number of answers to that, and we're, we're just in the first of a four-sermon little series on the resurrection. So I think there will be lots more on this in the coming weeks. So I won't say too much except to say... I think in the Bible we're often called to wait. There is no quick quick jump sorry, from deep sorrow to deep joy. There's often a wait. And in that wait there can be incredible pain. Between the pain of Good Friday and the joy of Easter Sunday, there's Easter Saturday, a kind of a limbo. I just wonder if some of you are in an Easter Saturday season of your life. And if you are, cling to God, like David, like Jesus. 
By bringing the focus back to God, David could praise. Jesus could trust and submit. God will not let you down. Cry out and cling on. And thirdly, as we study this rich and wonderful ancient text, we can discover Jesus written all through the Old Testament. He's like the pearl in the field. It challenges our preconceptions, perhaps, about the relevance of the Old Testament scriptures. Because the Bible is spirit-breathed, so it can be both relevant for David's pain and Jesus' trust in Gethsemane. But what's more... It can also resonate personally for us too. When I first looked up the psalm in my battered old good news Bible, I found I'd underlined lots of it because those verses had spoken to me at various times in the past. What's amazing about these ancient scriptures is that they can express David's emotions, reverberate throughout Jesus' life, and also ring true for you tonight in the place where you are at. So it might be that the Spirit is prompting you with some of the verses from Psalm 16 tonight. And so at the end, as we worship, I'm just going to leave some of the words of the psalm up so that you can see them and reflect on them. Um, And maybe something of it will really stay with you. Just before we close, though, This has been a little bit like an English literature class. So I want to give you a story about an English literature class. There is so much more we could say about the resurrection, which you'll hear in the coming weeks, I'm sure. So I just want to hint at some of what's more that there is for us to learn about the resurrection. I'm going to tell you the story that is told by Tullian Trevigian. Um, It's about his friend's daughter, Robin who desperately wanted to avoid an English literature class because she thought she was going to fail it. And she was in tears before her teacher saying, I just I just don't want to do the class. And the teacher said, what if I promised you an A? And whatever happens, you're going to get an A. This, by the way, is impossible in the British education system as instituted by Michael Gove, just mentioning it. But Robin, the girl in the story says that, yeah, 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 I can do the class, I can do the class. And of course, with the confidence that she's been given, goes on to achieve A's on her own. Chavijan takes this story and concludes it like this, and this is how I just want to finish. That is how God deals with us. Because of Christ's finished work, Christians already have an A. The threat of failure, judgment and condemnation has been removed. We're in forever. Nothing we do will make our grade better and nothing we do will make our grade worse. In his life, by his death and with his resurrection, Christ our substitute secured for us the everything, the A that we come into this world longing for and yet are incapable of securing for ourselves. All the pardon, the approval, the purpose, the freedom, the rescue, the meaning, the righteousness, the cleansing, the significance, 
the worth and the affection we crave and need are already ours in Christ. We don't need to add anything to it. The operative power that makes you a Christian is the same operative power that keeps you a Christian. The unconditional, unqualified, undeserved, unrestrained grace of God in the completed work of Christ. As I said, the banner under which Christians live reads, It is finished. So relax and rejoice. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. You're free.